Hi, this is Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show uh, at Substack and at YouTube. You know how to find us. Uh, I'm with John McWhorter. Every other week, John and I talk uh, for the record here at The Glenn Show. I'm at Brown University. Uh, John is at Columbia University. He also writes twice a week for The New York Times, where he continues to distinguish himself. Um, how are you doing, John? I am utterly exhausted, but that's better than being bored. How are you? It is indeed better than being bored. I'm too busy running hither and yon. This is the third kind of, the third podcast conversation in two days that I will have recorded by the time we're done with this. Uh, I had a wonderful conversation, though, which will be posted uh, shortly with uh, Sam Harris, uh, the distinguished uh, neuroscientist and philosopher um, and uh, podcaster. Uh, so that was his first time on the Glenn show. And that was, that was very much worth doing, but I mean, there's just too much on the plate here, man. Just too much. You know, um, there's one thing that I notice it's hard that people don't always process because you see somebody who's maybe in the public and you see them as one thing and it's, it's natural. I mean, I, I do it too, but I find that it's not always clear to some people out there when you, know, you get asked to do things and I'm happy to do it, but they don't seem to understand that we have jobs. You know, the people who don't seem to quite get that, you know, we teach classes almost every day. And I find sometimes I'm confounding people because they'll say, okay, such and such is happening at three o'clock PM on Thursday. And I think to myself, I don't remember the last time I was available at three o'clock PM on a Thursday, except in the summer, you know, we, we teach, but yeah, it's hard to teach and do all of this. I'm not complaining, but it's a lot. You know, it, it's and and the new podcast economy is such that it's basically as if every third person has their own radio show, and so there's just so much to do. But yeah, better than better than not, as far as I'm concerned. You know, this makes me think that there must be a business opportunity, and maybe this app already exists. There's so much content. Think about it on the other side, on the consumer side. How do you? I pity pick consumers and these days. People, you might be missing a lot of really good stuff that you don't know about. You might be wasting time on stuff that you know you you watch, but uh, you don't get as much out of as you could have gotten. Somebody needs to consolidate. There needs to be like a podcast uh, access portal or reference portal, reviewing, cataloging, uh, keeping people uh, aware of what's going on because there's a gazillion posts going up every month. You know. Yeah. Yep, I, th I know some people who are doing things like that because, yeah, I was thinking about getting into podcasts. I figured this is what everybody's doing, and I must be missing things that are no longer being written down. But I was just dazzled by how much there is. I couldn't even begin to pick. So except and for on some of my narrow favorite subjects, but on the bigger stuff, wow. Yeah, it was, it was overwhelming. We are part of the problem on the supply side, putting out mm -hmm. uh, – <laughs> And at the Glenn Show, every week there's a new uh, conversation. John and I, twice a month, plus the Q&A stuff that we do. I don't know how you do it, to tell you the truth. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you say we have day jobs, and I do have a day job, but I'm, John, I'm, I'm actually literally contemplating maybe it's time to, you know, uh, step aside a little bit from some of my responsibilities at the university to... You know, I hate to use the word retire because I'm much too young and mm -hmm. good looking to retire. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I love teaching. My teaching has been going wonderfully the last few weeks. Uh, and I get such joy uh, out of uh, interacting with the young people and whatnot. But, you know, it, it might be time to move on to the next phase, you know, take an emeritus status, maybe teach a class every every one one or two classes uh, every year, free up that corner office that I'm occupying that I'm sure my younger colleagues have their eye on and say, he's never in there. You know, he's taking up all that. He's got that good light, you know, the built-in mm -hmm. bookcases, you know, the, you know, <laughs> which because of seniority, I can, you know, uh, it, it almost doesn't feel fair for me to, uh, take the, uh, adequate salary, more than adequate salary that they're, that they're paying when I know that I'm, past my prime as a reproductive research scholar and 
whatnot. You know, it, I mean, it's not unfair. It's not unfair. I've earned it, and I am producing value for the university. But I don't know. And Most are, people would expect that you were emeritus by now and teaching maybe one course a year, one course a semester. Yeah, definitely. At the age past 70, you know, there's no mandatory retirement. I can stay until they carry me out foot first if I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of people at my um, age have transitioned to emeritus and, you know, are living a quieter life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have this... Uh, this uh, conference that's been organized in May, which you are uh, uh, invited to, and I'm, I was happy to see that you confirmed your attendance. That's very exciting. Where, you know, it's built around my scholarly and public intellectual contributions over the course of a long career, you know, over 40 years in this business of uh, higher education. And, you know, co-authors, students, uh, colleagues are coming from all over to gather in Providence and celebrate uh, the productive uh, academic life and intellectual contributions of your humble servant here. Uh, and I'm, I'm very honored and pleased to, by that, and I'm grateful that you'll be able to participate, John. I really am. I will be there. But it seems like that's an appropriate time like to say, okay, great. Yeah. My initial contributions have been recognized and honored. Uh, let's have the orderly transition to the, the next phase of, of the program here. In the movie, that would be your retirement party. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's such a harsh word. Uh, but I'm saying all that to say this, uh, what we're doing, every, every third person has their own radio show, and I'm one of those people, is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it almost doesn't feel like work. Uh, you get to talk to a wide range of people about interesting stuff. You get feedback from the public. You, you have an impact uh, on on the national conversation, a modest little impact. You represent something that you care about. You stand up for something. We're the woke busters here at the Glenn Show. We don't take no stuff from uh, uh, the social justice warrior zealots. John, I saw your piece. I, I'm I'm just... Rambling here. I saw your piece about uh, Jeffrey Lieberman, mm-hmm. the psychiatrist who g- seems to be get- getting canceled for that uh, poorly worded, ill-considered tweet uh, mm-hmm. that he put out where he used freak of nature phrase- mm-hmm. phraseology in the context of praising, as you, as you note, um, uh, a, a South Sudanese American um, uh, model whose name I escapes me at the moment, but you, you'll bring us up to date on that. Can we talk about that for a minute? What's, uh, mm-hmm. what's your take on that brouhaha? Well, he wrote a tweet where he's expressing that he finds her beautiful. Her dark skin has been commented upon. And he says, you know, you know whether she's something or a freak of nature, she's absolutely beautiful. Now, I think a work of art. Work of art, right, or a freak of nature. Now, you know, here he is. He's this this guy in a position of responsibility, and he's basically, you know, putting out this public tweet saying that someone is hot. That's not appropriate. It's tacky. And I think anybody would understand that, apparently. You know, he was missing a little bit of social grace on that. That's the sort of thing that the equivalent of which you could get away with 30 or 40 years ago, but it's not the way things go now. And... All I question, but it's a very important thing to question, is why does he have to lose his jobs or be suspended? It was a tacky tweet, certainly, but the whole thing is being conducted, first of all, with people pretending not to understand how language and expression work. So he's not calling her a freak. Yes, there have been people who have treated black women as circus freaks or thought of black women as freakish in various ways. He used an expression that the word freak is harbored in. He said freak of nature. Freak of nature has a meaning different from the word freak alone. It means something that is good. Freak of nature is praise. Usain Bolt, the runner, was described as a freak of nature in the media just five years ago, and no one said a thing. So it was clumsy, though, partly because some people will pretend to think that he was calling her a freak. In in this era, he should have been... um, aware that there were going to be some people recreationally reading him that way. And then also, what is he doing calling a woman hot in a tweet from his position? 
However, what in the world are we doing firing him for it? He should be sanctioned. He should be made to feel like a fool. It should be very embarrassing. All of that would be bad enough. And society would learn through the fact that he would be hung out to dry. It would be discussed. It would be considered disgusting. But why in the world does he have to lose his job? Why does it become something out of an Arthur Miller play? Why does he have to be chased out of employment? And I think it's excessive. It's just the punishment is far beyond what the crime deserves. Do you remember exactly what the punishment was? Excuse me. um, The punishment was, and to be honest, I'm a little undercaffeinated, but he lost one job, was suspended from another one, and stepped down from a third. This is one of the uh, most prominent psychiatrists in the country, right? I mean, he's like chief Mm -hmm. of psychiatry at a big medical center. At Columbia. That's right. So yeah, one, fired, two, stepped down because he would have been fired, three, suspended. His life is, is, is deeply altered forever. And frankly, why? Now, some people would say that this is progress, that this is the way it should have been 10 years ago. And my question is, why? How is this progress? And I'm not sure anybody would be able to have an answer to that. Well, he's being made an example of so that others coming after him will be more careful about how they refer to black women who are often sexualized and uh, exoticized, if that's a word. Is that a word, Mr. Linguist? Is exoticizing a word? Uh, exotify, I think. Exotify. Or, or I've seen exoticize, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's like, uh, let's teach modern America not to be like uh, mid-20th century America and how they think about black women. So the next person coming along will think twice before they repair to those kinds of uh, And references. I agree with that, but you'd have the same effect by sanctioning him in public and having a, an excoriating discussion about it. That would embarrass him deeply, and that would ward off other you know, guys, especially aging guys you know, who didn't get the message. But you can't do that. Why does he have to lose his job? And I think what that is is this new mood that is more about smoking out heretics than seeking progress. They're treating him like he's dirty. And many people say, well, he is. But why wouldn't people have felt that way just five or six years ago? What's the progress? I don't see it. I think that it's gotten to the point that there's a certain joy in the punishment or there's a certain show that a certain kind of person feels we're all supposed to put on. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. And a lot of people seem to think that this kind of excess makes sense where race is concerned because race is America's stain, et cetera. I don't see it. I just, you could have had the same effect on society by embarrassing the man and criticizing the man. You didn't need to destroy his life. I don't on this get it. freak of nature thing, man, you know, I follow the Boston Celtics. It's a good basketball team, everybody. Watch out, we're coming. And uh, the local cable channel that broadcasts the games has a couple of guys, I don't remember their names now, who are the commentators on the broadcast. They regularly refer to six foot nine people with a, a eight foot wingspan when they stretch like that, who can leap three feet off the ground from a standing position without blinking an Man. eye as freaks of nature. They regularly use that phrase. It's laudatory and it's meant to say, you know, you don't see anybody doing that walking down the street. That's something that is extremely unusual, rare mm-hmm. and special uh, talent, whatever. They don't mean any harm in doing it. And I expect that uh, Jeffrey Lieberman had more or less the same meaning in mind uh, when he employed that phrase. (laughs) Somebody white says something wrong and gets criticized, and you're the black guy who defends the person. And the truth is, yeah, I I will, because I really do think that an injustice is being done in this notion that we are so delicate that we need people to be fired and to have their lives destroyed for one thing that they say in a less than graceful way. Poor Sandra Sellers at Georgetown, the law professor, says that the black students are clustering in the bottom of her class, has her life destroyed. I've heard that she was destroyed by this, not just in losing the job, but that she's shattered. All of that is just not necessary. It's injustice to the people. It's injustice to us and making us look like poster children. And I really do feel that these things need to be said because a great many black people feel the same way. I feel like I'm representing a view that we don't get enough of. Just because you see the other view from the people who happen to cluster in the media and academia doesn't mean that's the only way black people think. But yeah, so I apologize to some people if it seems like I'm writing the same column over and over, but I'm going to write that column now and then in the future too, because there needs to be 
it, it needs to be represented that not all black people feel that we need to be treated in this way. We're just moving on over here. We're moving on. Uh, what did I want to ask you? Um, oh, oh, oh. The inward policing. It, mm-hmm. Isn't the, the freak of nature policing and the inward police, aren't they kind of cousins to, to one another somehow? And isn't the word Negro, which is in the sights of these people, would you fall on your sword to protect the word Negro? Not because you want to use it, but because it's a legitimate word that has a very long and dignified history in the uh, uh, linguistic culture of African-Americans from the 19th and 20th century. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to ban the word Negro, which is not the N-I-G-G-E-R word. It's a different word with a capital N. Uh, You know, the uh, Negro uh, of the mid 20th century was a dignified person. I mean, you know, so uh, the American Negro is a is a phraseology that you'll find in uh, social textbooks and in history, in uh, journalism, uh, the advancement of the American Negro, the history of the American United Negro Improvement Association. Isn't that what Marcus Garvey called his organization, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera? So that's a question, a question about uh, language policing and whether or not something is worth fighting for and does Negro fall within that uh, in that frame? There are a few things that make it clearer that there's a certain kind of person who gets off on being offended, that it's becoming wrong in some circles to even use the word Negro. And, you know, it it ends up we end up shooting ourselves in the foot because so many wonderful things that we did in the past are called Negro. And so, for example, one of the best classical pieces, one of the old time black classical composers wrote was called Negro Folk Symphony. It's by William Levi Dawson. That's what he called it because he's in black and white pictures. You know, that's that's what it was called. Negro Folk Symphony. Do you know that there are conductors across the United States who are refraining from performing the piece because they're afraid of its title and they don't want to get in trouble because of these people who are pretending that there's something wrong with the word Negro? It's now considered a little bit risky to deal with the piece because of its name. And so... The people who are pretending to be offended by the use of the word Negro are creating things like that. And yeah, Negro isn't a slur at all. But yeah, it's funny, I'm, I'm looking at a book right now. It's a gathering of pieces on race that the New York Times did about 20 years ago. It was actually a very good volume. It was called, um, it's called How Race Has Lived in America. And I remember there was one piece in that that was about a rapper. And I'll never forget, I still remember the phrase, a white reporter is interviewing this aspiring rapper, a young black man, and he actually says, I'm valid when I'm disrespected. He, like, he actually lays that out. The validity, you sense a validity, you sense a legitimacy, you sense yourself as important when you can complain about the fact that somebody is disrespecting you. He openly says it about that strain in his own music. And you know, That is something that describes a whole black sensibility. Not all black people. I suspect it's not the majority, but it's overrepresented among the people who have the pulpit of the media and academia and the written word. And so, you know, you've got the N-word, and the truth is that people actually using it, it's, it's relatively rare, and it's only one thing, and maybe you get a little bored, and so you start looking for other things to be offended about. So how about Negro? But it doesn't. It, it serves no purpose because there are black people really suffering, and you should be channeling your energy into that. It's based on something that doesn't make any damn sense, and yet you insist it does. And so non-black people stand by pretending you're making sense, but quietly thinking that there's something wrong with you. And it ends up meaning that people avoid discussing things that have that word in it. If you can't say Negro, you can't read out loud half of what Martin Luther King wrote. And that's really becoming an issue. Or you have to read it with, you know, saying, you know, N-word or something like that. This isn't the way things should be. I've written that piece. I did that in the Times. It's just, um, no, we don't need to make Negro into the new slur. Why do we need to have a slur to be offended about? What kind of frame of mind is that? I but find it's it not a slur. Unproud. I mean, nigger is a slur. You call right. somebody something with the intention of injury. 
unless mm-hmm. you're a rapper referring to the guy on the corner who's also a rapper and is getting uh, more downloads than you're getting. And, you know, that nigga ain't got nothing going that I don't have. Yeah, so. <laughs> Negro, Negro is not a slur. It, it is being, this is a manufactured offense, it, it would appear to me. There's no intention in the use of the word Negro to denigrate that that's the yeah you know, whereas the n word can be used in such a way where it's very clear that the intention of the speaker is uh is uh to to denigrate the the word n e g r o with a capital n is is merely a word it 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 doesn't have that connotation at all it, it, at least as far as i'm aware never did but it's, so, it sounds so what, kind of like the n word and so people have decided that we're supposed to be offended about it because so, black no, people are only real if we're offended. The, uh, question one is, what then should black people be, be called? Should we be called black? Should we be called African-American, et cetera? And, and uh, two, why is this issue of how black people are referred to and the uh, sanitizing and policing of it so vitally important? Is there any comparable... Uh, a set of uh, debates that goes on for other identity groups. Uh, I don't know, Jews or Italians or Irish or whatever. It's a question. You no, know, I Mr. remember. Um, and no, not not to my knowledge, people are not as obsessed with this issue of what one is called. And so, for example, an analogy: at some point in the late '80s, Hispanic went out of fashion in certain circles, and we started okay. saying Latino. Yeah. But notice that Hispanic is not treated as a slur. It's still around. You see it on paper. Many Latinos still refer to themselves as Hispanic. Nobody is going to throw a rock at you if you use Hispanic. Latinos don't seem to be as caught in this obsession with what we're going to be called, except, frankly, a certain group of academic Latinos who would, I think, vociferously disagree with me. But in the neighborhood I live in in Queens, i.e. Latino people living real lives, I can quite definitely say that Hispanic is not a slur. And for some of them, Latino is a little bit pretentious. And it just means that they are more concerned with real life rather than these names. It's a, it's one of these fish don't know their wet things because it seems so ordinary that black people, some, are that concerned with the names and whether you're going to capitalize black or not. I remember I sat in on a class on black film when I was a grad student at Stanford, when I was naive, I'm 25, and I just wanted to learn some stuff about black film. So every week they would, I think we had to watch a black film. This is, yeah, we had to watch one and then we would have this discussion. I only lasted four or five classes because I thought we were gonna learn about black people in the movies from the dawn of time until then. And it was an important time then because there had been the new spate of black movies starting with you know, Spike Lee's work and John Singleton's work. But that wasn't it. Tacitly, the idea was that the discussion was going to be about stereotyping and racism. And of course, you're going to talk about stereotyping and racism. You can't, you, know, you can't see birth of a nation and not talk about it. But as we started moving through the century, I saw that all anybody wanted to talk about was racism, as if that's the only interesting thing to say about all the things that black people have been doing in the movies for you know, over a century now. So I just had to go. I realized this is not a class about black film. This is a class about racism, where we use films to stimulate conversations about how the white man is you know, doing bad things to the black community. That was typical. And that's what this name thing is. The essence of blackness is complaint and anger and being offended. It does us in. I honestly believe that. Now, now I'm told that there is, uh, in reaction to the uh, to the word Latinx, a rebellion in some quarters of the uh, Hispanic community. I, I use those words advisedly, but I'm thinking about Chicano, Mexican American people in uh, Texas and California who might object to Latinx. What do you have to say about that? What's the what's the genesis of Latinx and what's the nature of the objection? Well, Latinx is the idea of Latinx is to avoid mentioning gender with the word because Latino is a masculine, Latina is feminine. The idea is to get beyond that kind of binary by saying Latin X. And that's a concern that 
certain Latino people, mostly academic and in journalism, have. But the thing is, it's a term that is not catching on remotely with most Latinos. Most Latinos don't feel that erasing that indication of gender is especially important. Some people are offended by it. And the truth is, X is a weird letter. The word Latinx could be argued arbitrarily to be rather ugly. You don't want to say it all the time. And so, yeah, there is pushback. The way I see it is that it's a it's a register thing. Latinx is going to catch on among a certain kind of highly educated person, but it's never going to have any purchase on the community. I don't know if that's wrong. So is but, this related to the pronoun uh, issue uh, about transgender identity? Yeah, that, it is. That is, you, and I think you the force pronoun a person issue. to, by saying Latino or Latina, you force the person to identify as one or the other, and some people may not feel right. that they are appropriately assigned to one or the other of those categories. Or they think that we shouldn't refer to people that way. We should get past the idea of seeing people divided between, you know, boy and girl. That's fine with me, but it's to have that concern be so central is not how most of the people concerned feel. And I don't think they're going to. And so there's just going to be a practice among a certain highly educated segment of people. To the extent that they try to force that terminology on others, that's going to be a problem because there's going to be resistance. But I'm not sure how much they're trying to force it. They should just realize that they're creating a register of their own. Okay, now what about capitalizing black? I saw you had a piece on that um, in the last couple of weeks. How do you feel about that? I personally, um, I don't capitalize it when I write, I, but the time I, I don't. We made a decision with my uh, newsletter editor, Mark Sussman, at uh, the Substack that we were going to stay with lowercase b, unless, of course, it's the first word of a sentence. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's caused a little bit of consternation because some people who want to contribute to the newsletter uh, are, are confused about why you're not following the New York Times style guideline about capitalizing black. I feel this way. I feel that I don't know how I tell somebody to not capitalize white if I'm capitalizing black. And I don't want to capitalize white. Well, why don't want, I want to capitalize white? Because white peoplehood is a reactionary and neo-fascistic notion. That whites are a people is, is very borderline racist in my mind. Are blacks a people? Not really. I'm prepared to say it. Take me out if you want to. I don't see how blacks can be a people and whites not be a people. I'm talking about immigrants from West Africa. I'm talking about people who have come into the society from the Caribbean. I'm talking, I mean, are blacks a people? If blacks are a people, don't you have to allow that whites can be a people? We're Americans here. I don't like African American, frankly, but it's I'm I'm not going to fight because you know we're way we're way 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 down the the line on that. But when Jesse Jackson first started promoting this idea about African American, I I, was, I never liked I was, it. I was very cool on that. I mean, I, I can't tell you an ancestor of mine who was born in Africa. I can't name one. Mm-mm. I know my great 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 greats were enslaved persons who were captive and brought to the country in the Western Hemisphere from Africa. But I'm African-American, that, that's a... But again, I'm not going to fight it. I mean, we're, we're too far down the line on that. You know, with the whole capitalization thing, I honestly just have a hard time caring about it. Um, capitalizing white would have a certain pleasing aesthetic aspect if you capitalize black, but white nationalists apparently like to capitalize white. And so that has deflected some people from advising capitalizing white too. And as of that, my whole response to that whole issue was just, I really don't care. There is activism, there's concern with society, and then there are these issues of of, of gesture and symbol. And once again, if Black is going to be capitalized. There you go with one more reason to be offended when someone doesn't do it, to be angry at somebody in their tweets because they're not capitalizing black and not using the capital B. And I just don't get the appeal 
of seeking ways to be offended. It's just in general, and this, I know I'm monotonous about this on this podcast, but I just feel that I wish some people would open up to the wonder of the world in a broader sense. There's so much to be interested in. Why be so focused on reasons to be offended about things having to do with being black when you are a black person? So yeah, I just, I'm more concerned with the content of what I'm writing than whether or not I'm gonna use some capital letter. It just seems like a distraction to me. The content is important. And I think that there's an analogy there with what do black people need? Do black people need to see the name of our group written with a capital letter? Is that what black people need? Aren't there other things that should have more priority than that? So yeah, I just have a hard time caring and I hate to seem so dismissive, but the problem is that it's something that I feel dismissive about. So yeah, I just can't it's, get myself there's into a, caring. There's a it's not just linguistics, this is political, isn't it? I mean, the capital B is exactly, as I said, making an assertion uh, about the existence of some kind of collectivity, some mm -hmm. kind of uh, aggregate, the black mm -hmm. community. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there's, this, there's a certain fictive, uh, wishful almost uh, aspect uh, to that. I mean, the the... Extreme opposite of this would be a kind of colorblind ideology in which you try to deny the relevance of racial categorization altogether. Um, isn't this Camille Foster's position? I have great respect for him that he doesn't think of himself as a black person. He thinks that that's a that's a, a outworn and antiquated and to some degree morally suspect uh, move in terms of categorizing people, uh, and he prefers to to transcend uh, that historical inheritance. Uh, so the capital B is a kind of take, staking out the other side of that debate and, and, and digging down into and reifying uh, the socially constructive and to some degree fictive identitarian uh, categorization, which is, quote, blackness, close quote. Yeah, um, it's... We hear about, well, there's such diversity among black people. Black people are not a monolith. And then there has to be this capital letter. And a part of me thinks, well, if there's going to be that particular unity, is the idea supposed to be that to be black is to walk around in fear of being mistreated by police officers? Because that seems to be a feeling that many people have, that our defining trait is that we have a problem with the cops. Because I'm not interested in capitalizing something because of fear of what somebody else might do to me. That strikes me as, as not prideful at all. And so, yeah, what, what is this, this unity? And more to the point, was there any question before 10 minutes ago about the black community and there being a body of people who are, consider themselves black and are seen as black and are doing black things? Was that unclear? Why do we need to, why do we need to capitalize a word in order to indicate that? It just seems sometimes like there are people who lack a sense of what there is to do or don't have enough to do. Just imagine talking to Dr. King. Imagine talking to Adam Clayton Powell. Imagine talking to, you know, Roy Wilkins about whether or not we're going to write black with a capital letter or not, or whether or not you're going to write Negro with a capital letter or not. They would, you say, they would laugh in your face. They say, you niggas must be doing pretty well if this is what you have to worry about. <laughs> That's exactly what they would have said. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting mine, of course, and we should mention Thomas Chatterton William in his book, Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race, and his anguished consideration, he being the product of a mixed-race marriage, his mother white, his father black, married to a French woman who I think you have to categorize as white, looking upon his children who are one quarter, quote unquote, black, uh, staring into the 21st century and wondering in what sense and to what extent and for what reason has his child got to be black and interrogating that whole presupposition. Um, and I, I think that's where the fertile ground is going to lie at the margins and in the intersections of racial identity. Um, my lovely wife, Lawan, is black. Uh, but two of her, uh, her daughter is married to a white guy. Uh, her adopted daughter is married to a East, uh, Central European guy. He's a wonderful guy. They've got kids. 
I'm looking at these children with their curly hair and their light uh, coffee with a lot of cream colored skin. And, uh, you know, they're going to grow up speaking different languages and stuff. Uh, uh, another friend has a German husband and a black mother and uh, the kids are speaking German from the cradle, you know, and I'm saying, what are we doing by importing this, you know, kind of way of thinking about ourselves, uh, carrying it, carrying it around. We won't let go. We're, you know, I, I don't know if we're serving our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I don't mean only personally our descendants, but I mean those who come after us in the society at all, at all well. Are we not shackling them with something that had a lot to do with my, our grandparents' lives, but may have much, much less to do with theirs? Yeah, it's, there's something coming. There's a debate that is coming about right now, and it's going to be messy because it's hard to allow that time passes. It's easy to get stuck in thinking in one way. And I think certain people are highly invested in a certain victim-focused sense of Black identity. But the thing is, with these mongrel kids these days, these, these mutt, biracial, multiracial kids, the idea among a certain kind of person who is, you know, often about my age, you know, maybe a decade younger. The idea is that they have to identify as black because of what they're going to go through. There's no point in talking about how they're neither one thing nor the other. Their blackness is going to mean that they're going to suffer discrimination. And there are many well-intentioned people who think they need to work on having a black identity. They need to be sent to some sort of black summer camp that they have to understand what they're going to go through. And the question today is, what? What are they going to go through? Now, if we were talking about 1985, sure, I went through it. Although I wouldn't say that it was so horrible, so life-defining. But yeah, little things happen. But today, what are they going to go through? And is what they're going to quote-unquote go through enough that you should expect them to form a whole identity on the basis of it? And frankly, I really do think that America has come far enough that those kids do not need to think of themselves as black because of what they're going to go through. And you can tell by the response to Thomas Chatterton Williams in social media, an awful lot of people just will not hear this. They're black people who won't hear it. They're white people who think it's their responsibility to pretend that racism is so bad today. Or they look at the way the cop thing is depicted in the media, and they get the idea that to be a brown person is to walk around ever in danger of being manhandled by a cop in some way. And of course, they're getting a very distorted narrative from the media, despite the fact that some cops can be discriminatory, the problem is not what it, what is shown, and so we we have a we have a problem there because we need our conversation needs to evolve, but it would require openly admitting that racism now is not what it was thirty years ago, and many people just can't do it. And so, for example, I did a piece in the Times on this whole notion of diversity and and the like. And I don't read the responses. I don't read the letters to the Times because I'm too busy writing the next piece. But I, things blow by in social media. And I saw one person write that I'm wrong, that my daughters shouldn't be thought of as diverse, that things have changed, because they know a black teenager who gets trailed in stores whenever he walks into the store. They said, my daughter is dating a black guy, and he gets trailed in stores whenever they walk into a store. Now, if you think that that's what it's like to be a black person now, then I can understand how you would suppose that Thomas Chatterton Williams is out of court and anybody who's kind of brown needs to think of themselves as part of a beleaguered class of people. But the truth of the matter is this, and I, I go here very seldom. You don't want to say this about people. That's a lie about that boy. He is not trailed every time he walks into a store. It may have happened to him one time, maybe two times. It may have happened to him never. Because the thing about the trailing is that sometimes you walk into a store and it's the salespeople's job to come to you and try to sell you something. <laughs> I am quite sure that a lot of people are, are interpreting that as being trailed. That boy is not trailed. Sometimes well, people it's just a, lie. It's and a I'm poetic almost, truth. And it, another one, what, another, very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Getting a cab in New York City, the idea right. that a black man can't get a cab. I have lived right. here for 20 years. I have never had that problem. That was a problem until about 2002, but things changed. And yet I remember about 10 years ago, a black man telling me that he can't get a cab in New York City. Yeah, you and know frankly, he's lying. 
He was lying. He was just simply yeah. lying. Yet he was looking down on me as somebody who was in denial about racism. Sometimes people just lie. So, yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's change the subject a little bit if we can. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not going to do, this is an announcement, we're not going to do part two of our response to the Q&A. I say this to readers of the newsletter who would uh, go there to see what we have to say about the Q&A for the month of February because, well, we're in the month of March now, and later in this month we will respond to the monthly Q&A, but we won't do a part two. But there was a question that we didn't get to uh, last time from the February Q&A. Subscribers to the newsletter get to submit questions that John and I will consider. So if you're wondering what I'm talking about, all you have to do is subscribe at glennlowry.substack.com. There was a question that I thought was worth us considering, and it asked us basically to state what we think about the institution of tenure. The questioner noticed that I have tenure at Brown University and that you, John, do not have tenure at Columbia University and wondered whether or not we had differing views or what our views might be about the institution of tenure, about its necessity, about what uh, is good and bad about it and so on. Your thoughts? Um, I think it's very important because it is possible to run afoul of fashionable ideas and have a certain kind of person hoping that they can oust you from your job. And that did not start in the spring of 2020. And so I understand the importance of the institution. There there are people who would have been interested in seeing me leave my job or be ousted from my job at Berkeley because of some things that I've written about how interesting Creole languages are. That, that's way back in the late 90s. And tenure, I did have tenure at UC Berkeley, protected me from that kind of person destroying my life in that way. And so I think that's why tenure was instituted. Now, is it true that some people after they get tenure stop really doing any real work? That is a problem. But the reason I don't have tenure is rather dull. It has to do with administrative aspects of Columbia. And the mundane truth is, The mundane truth, the reason I don't have tenure at Columbia is not because Columbia won't give it to me or something like that. The only way that I could do, like, Glenn, I don't know how you do it, the double career that I have where I both teach and research and then also participate in media, the only way that I can do that with 24-hour days is to not have the administrative responsibilities that you have when you get tenure. If I had tenure... I'd have to do more things helping to run the store at Columbia, and I simply wouldn't have time to write for the New York Times. So I take the risk. But no, tenure is a a great thing. And I would be lying if I said that I consider myself to have had it, and therefore I got that status. If I had never had it, it would bother me. I would feel like I wasn't the real thing. Well, I'm of mixed feelings about it. Yes, I do have tenure. I, I, I first got tenure in 1979 when I moved from assistant to associate professor at my first academic job, and I've been a tenured professor wherever I've gone ever since. Uh, I'm of two minds about it, actually. I, I think tenure in the absence of mandatory retirement can be a problem because I think there's a curve of productivity over the life cycle, and you peak somewhere and then it tails off. Even if you're working hard, you're not as productive when you're on um, most people almost all people are not as productive when they're 65 or 70 or 75 as they were when they were 35 or 40 or 45. Varies from field to field, but I think that's generally true. And with tenure and no retirement requirement, people can stay well past their uh, sell-by date. I mean, they can stay on into their 80s. Uh, And uh, the the incentives there are kind of messed up. Now, the institution, I suppose, can try to encourage people to accept retirement by offering them various financial bonuses and securities and whatnot. And they often but, do. And, and they do. The, the ostensible primary rationale for uh, tenure is to protect intellectual freedom so that people will not have to worry that their job security is jeopardized by them being, um, you know, off the beaten path in terms of uh, what their thinking is about controversial matters. And there are cases, I think, of Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania, who was under severe fire 
uh, as we speak. I mean, she would be gone, I feel confident, but for tenure from the law school at the University of Pennsylvania. She would have been gone three years uh, ago. Because of her controversial views about race and about immigration and about culture and whatever else. Uh, And I'm not endorsing those views here, I, I, I need to say. Some of her offending statements have been made right here at the Glenn Show, and I will continue from time to time to talk to Amy Wax here at the Glenn Show because I think she's interesting and in a way maybe because I'm just thumbing my noses at the cancel people who don't want to give her any platform whatsoever. But that's not the primary reason. I think the stuff that she talks about is worth arguing about. Um, So anyway, but never mind. But for 10 years, she'd be gone. There are cases like that. My case, I, you know, um, I I think the esteem of one's colleagues ought to be the primary motivation for uh, academic productivity, not the idea that I'm going to get this brass ring of tenure and then I can relax. I'm going to get I'm going to get past this hurdle and then I'll be golden and then, you know, and I'll be assured no matter what I do. Um, So I'm I'm of two minds about it, um, actually. There's no doubt that. An awful lot of people after tenure stop being as productive. There's a kind of professor who really enjoys administration more than they enjoy doing research and writing. I've always found that peculiar, but there's a certain type who does what they're supposed to do for seven years, maybe seven years and change, they get the tenure. Then what they really want to become is a dean of some sort. And they start doing that and they don't really write or research much again. Then there's a kind who isn't especially interested in being a dean, but we know who never really does any real work again. Often they are very dedicated teachers, though. And the idea is that they're going to instruct students and inspire students. They like undergraduates and also they mentor graduates, but they don't really do much work of their own. And the question is, what is the university supposed to be for? Um, And I'm not talking about people who are just complete deadwood, but they're people who would really rather instruct than do research and write long sentences and long papers that, frankly, not many people are going to read anyway. I can kind of understand that. And I guess I understand the kind of person who gets tenure and then would rather run the school than do research. I can kind of understand that. All the Sometimes I wonder, shouldn't there be a kind of person who doesn't have to go through the hoops of getting the tenure at all and just you know, goes to deaning school or something like that? But yeah, there are a lot of issues. There's a lot of mission creep in what the modern university is. And tenure is a funny thing because it kind of snakes through a lot of unstated assumptions and outdated assumptions. There are too many schools anyway. That's another thing. Too many people have to go to college at all. There's a lot. There's a lot there to unpack. You know, it's not the only alternative. You could consider long-term contracts that don't have to be lifetime. You could consider 10-year appointments that would be renewable. That's what I have. Um, And which where there'd be some guarantees that you couldn't cancel the contract just because the person was a Trump voter or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, John, you know, uh, there's a war raging uh, between Russia and Ukraine. I know we're not supposed to be experts on foreign policy here. Uh I feel like if we didn't say something about at least acknowledging that as we speak, we are aware of what's unfolding. This is the largest, uh, most uh, uh, concerning uh, conflict in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, How does it affect us? Are you confident? Maybe I can ask you this and the way that our uh, that our esteemed uh, uh, political and military leadership are reacting uh, to the conflict. Did you hear what the president had to say in his State of the Union about it? Um, you know, uh, there are people who are saying that, <laughs> I mean, here's Tucker Carlson's take. <laughs> he says, uh, I was wrong and he was wrong because he downplayed the possibility of conflict when the Biden administration were leaking uh, their uh, accurate security forecast that the massing militarization on the border was going to lead to an incursion. They were predicting it. They got the day wrong, but they didn't get the fact wrong. And uh, Carlson had downplayed that. He had poo-pooed that. And (laughs) he says, here's why I got it wrong. 
I got it wrong because when I saw Kamala Harris, uh, our incompetent vice president, this is Tucker Carlson, uh, talking to the Europeans, I had to figure there was nothing really that serious going on. Otherwise, they would have sent somebody who was actually a more competent representative of the government than Kamala Harris. So Tucker makes two points there, right? He says, uh, it's not that I underestimated Putin, it's that I overestimated Biden. And he makes his point that Kamala Harris is on his terms, an empty suit. Um, what do you think about how it is that our government is handling the crisis? Well, this is, um, this is a tough one because I think there, there's all indication that what Russia is going to do is incinerate several Ukrainian cities, and Putin wants to take Ukraine over. Putin thinks Ukraine should be part of Russia, is part of Russia, and always was, and has you know, never gotten over it being allowed to be it, uh, its own nation. That's what he wants. That has been an obsession of his. And so there's no dealing with, with him. And the only way to stop this would be to arm the Ukrainians to such an extent that they could keep that from happening. And that seems to be pretty much impossible. Therefore, we, we, we would have to go. There's this notion that we're absolutely not going to send troops. But frankly, to reverse this, I mean, I'm no military expert, but it would seem to me that we would have to send some to keep that from happening. And the scary thing is that there are many, 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 many people in Russia who are genuinely under the impression, because of media distortion, I think it's because of media distortion, that this was a defense operation, that there really was a critical mass of people in eastern Ukraine who were trying to do Russia in, and they were going to have this uprising and start killing ethnic Russians, et cetera, and that therefore this was needed, and that NATO was possibly you know, encircling and was threatening to attack Russia, it was against Russia. And you know, there are clips that can be made to look like that. And so a critical mass of the people are under the impression that this really had to happen, and there's very little way for them to see otherwise. So it's a very sad thing, because you know, this, is very, this is very Hitler. Putin sees Ukraine as, as a state that seceded. Ukraine sees itself as an independent nation and culture with its own history. But Putin won't have it, and Ukraine can't defend itself from what's going on. I, this is in my lifetime, this is the first time I've ever seen this. It's like seeing something that's supposed to be in black and white or in some picture book. It's, it's, it's appalling. And, you know, the way Russians feel about it, the way Russian Americans feel about it, the way Ukrainians feel about it, I'm still taking it all in. It's, um, I'm it's impressed a by Zelensky. But many Russians think it's good. That's another, that's another scary thing about it. Excuse me. I think we should actually dwell on that for a moment. Many Russians are behind what Putin is doing. I hear from a Russian friend of mine with whom I have communication, who is uh, dead set against this war and is humiliated and embarrassed that his country has undertaken such an action, but that uh, he's a 30-something. Their parents' generation, there's a lot of nationalistic, flag-waving, uh, pro-Russian support for uh, the action that Putin is undertaking uh, in, in uh, Russia. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that Zelensky, this guy who comes out and does these press conferences in a T-shirt or, you know, for, uh, uh, combat fatigues and whatnot, who says, I won't leave, I won't leave Kiev, no matter what, and, uh, you know, gives an address to the European Union in which he says, uh, this may be the last time you see me alive, because he knows, you know, what well may be coming. Gosh, uh, it's uh, it's really horrible, the bravery of the Ukrainian people fighting back uh, you know, preparing themselves, stealing themselves for the worst. Uh, gosh, uh, densely populated cities under bombardment, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands will die before this is over. Uh, One out of 40 so people have already left the country. It's also. awful. It's awful. Um, the humanitarian uh, consequences and so on, it's awful. What of the geopolitical consequences? Uh, we can't really repel the Russian attack on Ukraine. We could slow it down. A no-fly zone? Are we really going to go to war with Russia? Are we going to shoot down Russian aircraft who violate a no-fly zone? Are we going to attack Russian anti-aircraft batteries to ensure that our planes are not endangered? Are, are we going to 
take a step into what could escalate into something that could be very, very awful is, are the principles at stake worth that much to us? Feels to me like the answer there ultimately is no. But that's that powerful. being the case, you can then work backwards to say, therefore, they're not going to do that. The Russians know we're not going to do that. And so they can call our and, bluff. We better right. be careful not to promise stuff that we can't deliver on. Are the financial sanctions going to be enough? Gosh, I doubt it, frankly. Putin doesn't if care. Any God. It won't affect uh, him, so he doesn't is care. Is destroying the Russian economy really in our interest in the longer run? Do, do, are we trying to induce an internal regime change dynamic, a coup d'etat, to get Putin out of power because we inflict so much pain on the Russian people or on certain Russian people that they move to? Do we know what comes in his uh, wake if, if we are successful in, in uh, somehow getting Putin out of power? Is it really just Putin? I mean, I don't know the answer to these questions. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, the sanctions right. I haven't won't seen anything matter. like this. Pardon? Sanc- the yeah. sanctions won't matter. He doesn't care. It's about, it's about him and the oligarchs and people suffering as far as he's concerned. It all makes sense because we have to bring Ukraine back into the fold and some people are just going to have to suffer. He's not, he's not a nice person. And um, he has a completely different sense of what he's for than we would suppose. So, yeah, it's a ghastly situation because apparently, yeah, if we're not going to go put people on the ground, if we're not going to have World War III, then Ukraine, it would seem, is lost. And he gets what he wants. And then life goes on. And then, of course, he's going to want other regions back. Yeah, this is not how it was supposed to go. Well, to draw a connection between the two parts of this conversation, it does make the race debate in America seem small when you put it into the global geopolitical context of the survival of nations and of the possibility of of total war um, maybe we could all maybe <laughs> god forbid uh, escalating conflict would be enough to shock us all into a sense of recognition that our americanness is much more important than our blackness or our whiteness or our asianness or whatever it that might be never works i remember this after 9/11 I remember having a conversation with Stanley Crouch. He was going to, he was yeah. thinking about putting together a volume of black writers and the volume was going to be called Blacks After the Bomb. And he was thinking that based on what 9-11 seemed to signify, the idea of you know someone sitting in their office complaining about something a white person said about their hair or you know a freak of nature, et cetera, would seem yeah. trivial and that black people would start thinking of themselves as Americans first. Yeah. Well, look how that went. And so I don't know if that's going to happen here either. Um, I think that we're going to have both Ukraine being taken over by Russia and we're going to have people here pretending that Negro is a slur. The two things are going to coexist. By the way, audience, those who don't know, this is the late, great Stanley Crouch, author of, amongst other things, Notes of a Hanging Judge, a collection of critical essays. Stanley, the jazz critic who was with Witten Marcellus uh, running the jazz program at uh, uh, the, uh, what do y'all call that? Uh, the Lin- jazz at Lincoln Center. At the Lincoln Center, yeah, indeed. Uh, gravelly voice. Oh, man, don't you know, race is over. <laughs> I can remember him saying that to me. Race, race is over which is very much in the spirit of what he was trying to do with you. But race, sadly, or is it sad? I guess that's not going to be over for a long time. Not over yet. (laughs) And therefore, the black guys will be back in two weeks talking the same kind of talk. You should join us. Check us out. Thanks, John. Thank you, Glenn.